Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast about the questions that animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. In 1968, our guest, Dr. Bernie Krauss, was leading a booming music career. A prodigiously talented musician, he'd played guitar on Motown Records as a teenager, replaced Pete Seeger in the folk band The Weavers in his 20s, and had become a pivotal figure in electronic music by age 30 mastering the synthesizer and introducing it to popular music and film. He worked with artists like The Doors and The Beach Boys, performed music and effects for iconic soundtracks for more than 130 films and shows, like Apocalypse Now and Mission Impossible, and co-produced game-changing albums showing the world how the synthesizer could combine sounds into new timbres. Then Warner Brothers commissioned his duo, Beaver and Krauss, to create the first-ever album incorporating the sounds of wild habitats. So Bernie headed into Muir Woods north of San Francisco with a portable recorder, mics, and stereo headphones. What he heard changed his life. A flowing stream, gentle winds in the tall redwood canopy, a pair of calling ravens, feathers resonating with each wing beat. It was an immense new world of music. Listening to it made him feel calm, focused, and simply good in a way he hadn't felt before. Bernie decided he wanted to record wild animals for the rest of his life, and that's what he did. He quit Hollywood, got a PhD studying bioacoustics, back when the field comprised about five people, and began traveling the world to record wild habitats. Over the past 50 years, he's built what The New Yorker aptly called an Auditory Library of Alexandria for everything non-human. His astonishing archive includes the sounds of more than 15,000 species, from barnacles twisting in their shells, to chorusing tropical forest frogs, to feeding humpback whales. wildlife records isolated the calls of individual creatures, but Bernie recorded habitats as a whole. Hearing the interwoven sounds of plants, animals, and landscapes, and the complex interplay between the timbres, pitches, and amplitudes, he proposed a remarkable new theory of ecosystem functioning, that each species produces unique acoustic signatures partitioning and occupying sonic niches such that the singing of all the creatures in a healthy ecosystem can be heard, organized like the individual players in an orchestra. It cannot be overstated how impressive and important Bernie's library is. There were no mentors, no guides for what equipment to use in extreme weather, No instructions for how to capture the subtle sounds of snow falling. The depth of a glacier cracking. Or the whispers of wolves. 
Nor was there the scientific language to describe what he was hearing and what it revealed. Bernie and his colleagues had to figure all of this out themselves, inventing a new scientific field called soundscape ecology. Bernie's soundscapes were full of epiphanies about the origin of our own culture and music, about the profound connectedness of creatures, and about the unseen tolls of human activity. 50% of the habitats in Bernie's archive no longer exist due to habitat destruction, climate change, and human din. In recent years, Bernie has turned his attention to conveying the profound beauty, change, and peril of these soundscapes to a wide audience through books and artistic collaborations, including composing a 70-piece symphony with Richard Blackford for the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. His work reminds us how much we have to gain by being quiet, listening, and saving the world's animal choruses, and the gravity of how much animals and humans alike have to lose if we do not. We're thrilled to speak with Bernie today. He is a visionary scientist, an intrepid explorer, a legendary artist, and quite probably the only person on earth to ever have been both ripped off by George Harrison and thrown by a mountain gorilla. Bernie Krauss, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Vivica. And Jennifer, this is really, I mean, you've said everything there is to say. I mean, what can I do now? Oh, no, having read, read, read the books and listened to um, some of your amazing archives, that is definitely not true. But one place to start is you coined these terms to describe what soundscapes compose of, which are biophony, geophony, and anthropophony. Will you explain these concepts? Well, sure. In 1977, there was a fellow by the name of R. Murray Schaefer, a wonderful composer and naturalist from Canada, and probably my favorite 20th century composer, who wrote a book called Tuning of the World. And Tuning of the World uh, was really important because it posited for the first time the idea of the soundscape and defined it for what we've been working with now. And the soundscape for Schaefer was all of the sound that reaches the human ear. Except the one thing that he didn't do in that book was to describe the sources of sound, because it's really important to make that distinction, one sound from another. Where do these sounds come from? And so much later on, actually in the early 2000s, I was working with a fellow by the name of uh, Stuart Gage, who is Professor Emeritus at Michigan State University. And together, we did the first study on the effects of natural soundscapes and what they revealed in terms of habitat health in the national parks. But as we were doing this, it became really clear that we had to come up with definitions of sound in order to talk about how these uh, sounds were being articulated. And so I had already introduced the, the idea of biophony in my 1998 book, Into a Wild Sanctuary, and described it. And Stuart said, well, there are some other things that we've got to do. We've got to do human sound um, because humans are really distinctive now and we think we're separate from the natural world. And also there is non-biological natural sounds that we haven't described. And so we started to think about that and came up with uh, three Greek terms. The first of them was the geophony, or the natural sounds that are always around us, uh, the sounds of water, the sounds of wind rustling the leaves of trees or grasses, movement of the earth, that kind of thing. And then there were, uh, and uh, by the way, these were the first sounds on earth four and a half billion years ago. The problem was there was nothing to hear them. 
until about 55 million years ago when uh, organisms began to evolve. And then the biophony was introduced, bio meaning life, of course, so that the, the, it's the sounds of living organisms. And then we decided that we had to come up with some categories for human beings because, again, we're separate and we think we're very special. So we, we gave ourselves the anthropophony component, and that's made up of two subcategories. The first is controlled sound, like music, theater, and language. And the second category, a subcategory is comprised of a chaotic and incoherent sound, which I refer to as noise. And noise is a really important component of that because it affects how we perceive the world around us uh, acoustically. And um, we, uh, I'm, I'm just now writing, uh, finishing a book on that very subject. And I, I do want to get to the human impacts and, and human noises on these soundscapes. But one of the things that was so revolutionary about your work is you weren't just looking at these sounds in isolation. So hearing individual bird calls or, or documenting individual species. You were listening to animals interacting with one another and with the geophony in, in really incredible ways. And, and you realize that they're modulating their voices in response to one another. Uh, and there are all these adaptive mechanisms that they use to make sure that they could be heard. How did you come up with this uh, acoustic niche theory, as you call it? Well, as you said in your introduction, my background is a professional musician, a studio musician. And so I have always thought of the sonic world as being a kind of a chorus of sound. It never occurred to me to take things out and abstract them one by one. But the ways in which natural sound has been collected since 1889, when Ludwig Koch, a German kid eight years old, recorded the first bird in his backyard, his dad had given him a, a, an Edison wax cylinder recorder, and he recorded the first bird. And that set the paradigm for all of the, almost all of the things that followed. All of the work at Cornell, all of the work at the British Library of Wildlife Sound, all of these uh, institutions decided that it was important to focus on individual birds and take them out of context. Well, it's a bit to me like abstracting the sound of a single violin player out of an orchestra and trying to express the magnificence of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You can't really do it. I mean, you can play the theme, but it doesn't give you the impact of it. So to me, when I first started to record, even though the people that I was working with and, and the mentors I was working with were more inclined to record things individually and to get the sounds of birds and mammals and insects and frogs and so on individually, to my mind, that was okay, but it wasn't like the way the world sounds. And so I began to record and collect things holistically because that's where the information is. That's where the narrative is. And that's where we get all of the information that we're going to get from the sonic natural world. What did it feel like to be one of the few people doing this? You're still one of the few people 
recording, especially in this holistic way, though the field of soundscape ecology has blossomed and grown tremendously since you started. But I wonder, you know, what did it feel like at the beginning to be having what must have been epiphany after epiphany? I, I recall reading a section that you wrote about singing ants. And what it was like to realize this and how fantastic the sounds these little things make are. And then you've recorded the far opposite end of the spectrum as well of glaciers and uh, you know, enormous animals. I'm curious, how, how did that feel? You have to be very comfortable with loneliness and, and solitude and isolation because when you come up with new theses, uh, particularly in the field of science and biological sciences, that's the first thing that you'll get. But I'm very comfortable with that. So I had no problem. And as a matter of fact, it just drew me more and more into it, the more resistance I got from the scientific community. But finally, little by little, these ideas have been embraced, and mostly in Europe, because this is where these ideas have really taken root. I was really surprised because there's a group there called the International Society of Ecoacoustics. When we had our first meeting in 2014, we thought maybe 40 people would show up. Well, 400 showed up. And I realized how engaging this uh, field is now. And really, I'm, I'm amazed at how many people are uh, involved in the field of soundscape ecology now. And it's all based around these ideas of, of the holistic sound that emanates from these habitats. The ways in which you describe these soundscapes as music is so compelling and using a lot of musical terminology to convey what's happening in the natural world. And when you look at spectrograms, you know, showing the acoustic signatures in a visual form of these landscapes, it really does look like an orchestral score with your, your higher instruments and your mid-tier and, and your bass, bass line. But is there anything about animal noise that you've noticed transcends our own human perceptions of music or, or music as we know it. What have you learned about sound from moving from the music industry into this entirely new area? The first time that I ever heard it as a symphony, I was working on a project for the California Academy of Sciences in Kenya. I was camping near a waterhole recording one night, and I'd, I'd been recording for many, many hours uh, that day, and I was really tired, and I was just lying in my bunk and had my earphones on and was listening to these sounds of the evening. And to me, it struck me as being so cohesive and related and where each critter voice that I was listening to had established its own bandwidth. And I mean, this was just an idea that occurred to me while I was just sort of lying there. And I had no way to show that or prove that until I got back to my lab in San Francisco. And then I began to create a spectrogram as a result of that sound, and they were very primitive back then in 1983. And immediately I could see what looked to me like a musical score by Boulez. And I thought, uh, there's something here, or there's something wrong. And I began to pull some more spectrograms of the various habitats that I'd recorded in Kenya and realized that each place had its own voice. And it was illustrated through the graphics of these spectrograms. And that's kind of what got me onto this idea. It's proven itself every other time that we've gone out and recorded. And one of the neat things is that with the technology that we're using to record now in the field, 
we can actually see the intricate ways in which these habitats express themselves through these biophanies. And, it, and every habitat is unique. You go walk 100 meters in any direction and it's going to change. In these biophanies that are orchestras and choruses of their own, highly organized such that all the creatures can be heard. It's interesting that you're saying that and still referring to it as an orchestra. It's really not an orchestra. It's a proto-orchestra. It's orchestra is our label, is our way of of uh, defining um, an organization of sound in this instance. And well, that's exactly what it is. It is organized sound. There's no question about it because if a creature uh, is going to expend energy through its vocal behavior, it damn well better be in a channel that's clear enough so that its voice can be transmitted and, in fact, heard back. So it's very important for creatures to establish these niches, these, this bandwidth for themselves. And since we're mimics, we actually, when we lived closely connected to the natural world, we learned these sounds from the animals. We learned melody from the animals. We learned orchestration from the animals because that's how that's how they were organizing and, and creating this bandwidth for themselves. We learned rhythm by watching gorillas and, and chimpanzees mark out rhythms on the buttresses of fig trees. We have nothing original uh, that we can claim here. All of the copyrights are owned by the critters. Mm -hmm. In addition to recording the sounds of habitats and, and animals, your company, Wild Sanctuary, also produced a number of, of records of indigenous groups, both in Africa, uh, featuring the recordings of uh, Louis Sarno, of the Bayaka Pygmy people, and as well as in the United States and elsewhere. Why did you focus on this? And in particular, I'm interested in it in terms of the integration that you mentioned between how humans all over, when we were hunter-gatherers, used to take into account and pay attention and be in harmony with these natural sounds versus, of course, the dominance that we see in modern Western society? Well, I always thought that as part of this work, it was really important to illustrate as closely as we could what these connections are. And Louis Sarno just happened to appear on the scene at that moment. In 1984, he uh, was listening to National Public Radio, and that particular day they were playing music of an anthropologist that had recorded some pygmies in the, in the uh, forest of Central Africa. That moment changed Louis's life because he sold everything that he had and, and bought a one-way ticket to the Central African Republic to record that tribe that uh, Colin Turnbull, the anthropologist, had recorded. When he went to Bangui, he found it to be very strange, but knew enough French to be able to get around, and finally found where the Bayaka lived in the southwestern part of the Central African Republic. And it's a place called the Zonga Sanga Forest. And he began to record the Bayaka and spent the rest of his life until a couple of years ago when he died recording and capturing the sounds and the music of the Bayaka. And he has a wonderful collection of that material and also the soundscapes, which I encouraged him to do. The upshot of that was that uh, he has a huge collection at Oxford. Uh, we have part of his collection here, by the way. We did a book together in 96. It's called Bayaka, the Extraordinary Music of the Babenzele Pygmies. What he 
intimated in that book to me was something I've been thinking about for a long time because, again, we were flying solo and very much alone in, in our respective fields. And one of the things that he mentioned to me in passing was that when the bayaka begin to sing at night or during the daytime, they're always using the soundscape, the biophony of the forest as a natural karaoke orchestra with which they perform. So it isn't the other way around. It's the, it's the sounds of the forest that initiates the singing and the dancing to begin. So they're dancing, imitating this, the movements of animals, and they're singing, imitating the sounds and orchestration of the animals that they hear in the forest. So when he said that, I just gave him a big hug. <laughs> The, the songs are so amazing. They are fabulous. Have you, have you heard the earth bow? I don't think so. What is the earth bow? The earth bow, I mean, imagine this. They build these grass huts with sticks and, and the grasses around them. And they tie a piece of sinew to a corner of the hut. And the other end of it is staked to the ground. And by pushing on the side of the hut, they change the tension on that string. And they play these wonderful rhythmic patterns by plucking this string and pushing on the house to change the tension. And you've got to hear this. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. to do that by watching animals pluck away at different kinds of branches and different length branches to uh, create different kind of pitches. So anyway, the earth bow is really worth listening to. It's very interesting. Very jazzy, by the way. You know, unfortunately, much of the world is no longer as in tune with the biophonies and geophonies around them as the biaca are. And in many cases, we're not responding to the sounds that we're listening to, but impacting them through our, our, our own noises and, and sounds. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of, of human influence, whether habitat destruction or, or noise on these soundscapes as a whole and on the creatures that live in these ecosystems? Uh, yeah, uh, we're having a profound effect on it because in, in terms of the power of Western media, to impose itself on the rest of the world, the effect is profound. It's happening all over the place. When a researcher or a photographer goes in to visit groups like the Yanomami in northern Brazil or the Hivaro in the Amazon basin or Stephen Feld's Kalali in Papua New Guinea, what happens is many of the researchers bring with them things that they commonly like to hear. And they bring these radios or iPods and stuff like that, that that have music on them that people hear. And when the Bayaka hear them or other people hear them, when, when the missionaries come and they, they begin to introduce their music, it changes the whole context of the way people listen and invo involve themselves. Because, again, humans are mimics. 
and we'll mimic and try anything that we hear and see how it integrates into our own cultures. And, you know, it's a, it's a huge blend of stuff now that we find reflected back at us when we go to these places. It's really amazing to hear the changes and the difference. It happened to the Native Americans here in North America with their introduction to some of the missionary music that occurred in the 18th and 19th century as these tribes were met and converted. So all of that changes. And I mean, there's some argument whether it's okay or not. I am fascinated by stuff that hasn't changed all that much. I think the Bayaka, when Louis Sarno went there, reflected a kind of older model musically than what's occurring now. It's since changed radically. And you make the point in your work, too, that sound in many ways is uniquely capable of displaying many types of change. For instance, you've given the example of Lincoln Meadow in California before and after a selective logging occurred, where what, what it looks like to a photographer is it's still a forest. Uh, there are just a few trees taken down here and there. But, but your work revealed that, in fact, a lot of impact escapes the eye in a situation like this. Will you tell us about that example? Well, sure. I've been recording at this place. It's about a three and a half hour drive uh, east of uh, San Francisco in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, it's north of Lake Tahoe, about 50 miles or so. This place is located at about 6,700 feet, and it's a meadow that had been untouched. I'd been recording there for many years during the 19, late 1970s and 80s. And I went back every year to record, and it was really quite extraordinary and quite beautiful. But in 1988, a logging company was trying to convince local residents that there'd be no environmental impact from a new model that they were trying called selective logging. So I said, okay, would you mind if I go in there and record an example before you do your selective logging, and then I'll come back a year later, and then we'll see what happens. So in 1988, June of 1988, right on the summer solstice, uh, I went in and recorded the dawn chorus there, and it was beautiful and robust, and it had many different species of birds. And then logging took place late that summer. Again, it was selective logging, because when I took a picture of it the next year and subsequent years, it looked like not a stick or a tree was out of place. And uh, But when I recorded it, and you hear the sounds after selective logging and the ways in which the density and diversity has dropped, of bird life in particular, has dropped radically, you really understand that there's probably something profound happening here and that these changes are expressed in the subsequent biophony of the habitat. And you can hear that. I mean, here's a, here's a really good example. Here's Lincoln Meadow in California pre-selective logging, recorded in June 1988. The Biophany's dawn chorus included the voices of Lincoln sparrows, warblers, Williamson sapsuckers, pileated woodpeckers, golden crowned kinglets, robins, and grosbeaks, as well as squirrels, spring peepers, and numerous insects. Bernie recorded them all. And here's the same meadow after selective logging, one year later. It's muted. The main sounds are a stream and one hammering sapsucker. 
I'm so gripped by what you, the way that you describe the loss of sound in these forests and and the way that that can illustrate forests that you know to the to the eye seem and to the casual observer seem so healthy and and industry often portrays it as such and the sound really conveys the massive dearth that that's left in in the wake of these operations and the possibilities that that opens up for more fully conveying the profound impact of our extractive industries is, is really incredible. I didn't really go out there and record with the idea in mind that I was going to show these changes. That was never my, that was never originally my intent. Uh, my intent was to just to record the natural soundscape as it was and to show that. Uh, and largely because I suffer from a terrible case of ADHD and it's one of the things that made me feel good just sitting there and recording. I was beginning to see that there are some differences that are expressed through these soundscapes. I have an example of a, of a forest in Costa Rica that was clear cut. This is Bernie's recording from Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica in 1989, before the clear cut. At the time, the site consisted of thousands of acres of old forest. Here's what the same place sounded like six years later, after the site where Bernie recorded and much of the rest of the forest around it had been clear-cut and covered with a grid of logging roads. You can hear the, the difference in the sound immediately. It's very compelling to hear the difference. And you have to ask yourself, is that what you want expressed in a, in a habitat? And now people are beginning to think, okay, well, we can listen to these sounds and try to repopulate these habitats uh, so that the soundscape returns. Well, once you damage a habitat and change its components, the soundscape is never the same and can never be the same. You can't restore that. You can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's just too complex, and we don't know enough about it. And also the other thing is, that the field of soundscape ecology is very new. It started in the early 2000s, really. It's only 20 years old. And, you know, we're beginning to put all these pieces together and learn what it is that these narratives are telling us. It's, it's just wonderful. It's very exciting to see this stuff and to hear it. In 1995, in Vanua Levu, Fiji, Bernie recorded two sections of the same reef, one alive and one dying. This is what the healthy reef sounded like. Bernie estimates there were about 15 or 16 different types of fish. This is the same reef, recorded at the same time, about a quarter mile away, where the reef is severely stressed and mostly dead, bleached from ocean warming, acidification, and pollution. All you hear is snapping shrimp and the waves. Yeah, but it's happening all over in all different kinds of habitats. And I just wanted to show one marine habitat in Fiji that describes this phenomenon, what happens when a, when a reef is dying. Well, when it's dying, there are no living organisms to support that environment. You make clear, too, that the loss is happening on many levels when we silence or degrade these soundscapes. 
in terms of the biophony as a whole, but also in terms of the impact on individual creatures. And in particular, you tell you tell a story that is unforgettable of how in 1993, a, a fighter jet buzzed a zoo in Sweden and the tigers and the lynxes and the foxes panicked based on the sound and tore apart and ate 23 of their own babies in a moment of extreme, extreme panic. But I'm wondering if you could give a few more examples of how individual creatures are impacted by our noise pollution or by the interruption of this carefully organized system of a healthy ecosystem. Well, I would just reflect on ourselves. We're profoundly affected by noise. Noise is one of the things that we're drawn to. I mean, if there's a noisy restaurant around where many of us, especially when I was younger, uh, would be drawn to these places because we thought there was a lot of excitement there and a lot of action. And so that's where we headed. It, it seemed to provide us with a kind of life experience that we were looking for. But it really has an effect on us, and that effect is higher blood pressure. It causes us a lot of stress, not to mention the fact that some of the restaurants that we measured around here were up around 110 decibels, and people were wondering why their ears were ringing when they left these places. But one of the things that, that I noticed while doing the research for this uh, new book was that the design of restaurants is intentionally purposed so that many restaurants are noisy with hard surfaces. They're very reflective, no uh, tablecloths or anything like that, and loud music that's being played in them as well. And so when people go in to eat, they're designed so that the noise creates so much stress in people that they go for fast turnover in these restaurants because they want to make more money. I call it gastro-capitalism. And, uh, and, you know, it, it's happening all over the place. Uh, a lot of restaurants in San Francisco are designed that way so that they get the fast turnover as a result of the noise. The noisier it is, the more stressed and tired people are by the time they get out. They're screaming at each other to be heard. That's one of the examples of the impact that it's having on us animals. And it does that to other animals. There was a study done in the early 2000s from Montana State University on the effect of snowmobiles, the noise of snowmobiles on wolves and elk. They found that every time that snowmobiles were present, that even though the behavior didn't change and the birth rates were still fairly high, when they analyzed the feces of these animals, of the wolves and the elk in the presence of the noise, the glucocorticoid enzyme levels in the feces was off the charts because of the noise introduced by the two cycle engines. And when the noise stopped, those stress levels began to disappear and uh, went back to normal. So they tested the both in, I think, in Voyager's uh, National Park in, in Lake Superior on Isle Royal, and uh, in another national park, I think in Yellowstone, uh, they did it as well. Yeah, the impact of, of noise pollution is in many ways sort of a, a forgotten environmental impact that not many people think about because it's it's less tangible, though, of course, to the animals themselves uh, and their, their stress levels and, and impacts to their own communication, it can be 
tremendously tangible, you know, whether we're talking about the impacts of seismic testing on, on whales or the impact of snowmobiles on wolves. Don't, don't forget, Jennifer, you can't, one of the problems is, is you can't see noise. You can't smell it. You can't touch it. It has no texture to it that, that you know, that's tangible to us. And so for many people, it just doesn't exist. It's just out there in the ether. It has no context that we can talk about. And there's no language for it. Even in this whole discussion, we're talking about the ways in which we see things. I see what you're saying. And, and you've talked about how this noise pollution issue has been, for the most part, ignored at the policy level, especially, you know, starting with the Reagan administration and, and James Watt. Can you describe a little bit about where where policies have sort of started to address this issue, but perhaps have been stalled or, or defunded? Sure. In, in Europe, the World Health Organization had established noise criteria for all of its participants, particularly in the EU. And they've been pretty aggressive, although it's a suggestion, it's not really enforceable, but they've been pretty successful in quieting down a lot of the countryside, for instance, and even some of the cities. Uh, you wouldn't know that by going to Paris, which is one of the noisiest cities in Europe, but, but certainly a lot of the others have begun to uh, pay some attention to that. And there was a, something equally important that was established here. It was the Office of Noise Abatement, which was part of the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. And the people that established that knew at the time that the office was established that it was going to be very important. They had no idea how they were going to enforce it. But it was first established as just suggestions of the city's ways to quiet things down a little bit and, you know, and not cause so much uh, havoc in our neighborhoods and so on. The Office of Noise Abatement was a target of the Reagan administration when they got into office because to them it was a waste of money and they really couldn't see what the benefits were. At the same time, Reagan had hired James Watt as Secretary of the Interior. One of the first things that Watt did in 1982 was to defund the Office of Noise Abatement. When he defunded it, all of that stuff went away. It didn't, he didn't completely close it down. Actually, it still exists under HUD, but it's completely ineffective. It, it is no office or anything like that for Office of Noise Abatement any longer. And when Watt was asked by a journalist why he had defunded the Office of Noise Abatement, he said something very interesting. He said, noise is power. And the noisier we are as Americans, the more powerful we appear to be to others. Now, I thought, I thought that was the most extraordinary statement of where we were as a culture. But it's true. That's where we are as a culture. And we're still doing the same thing. Your work in recent years has focused very much on not just building your library, but collaborating with other artists to create installations, to create symphonies, to create albums that use the, use the recordings that you found to, to sort of harness the emotional power of music, to move people, to care about these places, and to want to preserve them. And in particular, uh, we're going to play here a segment from the Great Animal Orchestra and Wild Soundscapes, which we'll ask you to tell us about, which is a symphony that you composed with Richard Blackford. 
But first, we'd like to play a recording by one of your colleagues, Kurt Olson, of A Beaver, which is then integrated into this later clip that we'll play. Will you tell us about, about this beaver and, and the clip we're about to hear? Yeah, uh, Kurt is a colleague of mine from Minnesota, and he'd been recording at a lake which was very remote and had no human habitation around it. Uh, he'd been recording there for many years. And about uh, eight years ago or nine years ago, he was recording at that, at that same site. Uh, and it, oh, by the way, it was a habitat that was, that was established and, and maintained pretty much by this group of beavers that had built a dam at one side of, the, of that pond, and that whole ecosystem was maintained by them. Kurt was recording one spring afternoon in, I guess it was 2010 or 11, and a couple of game wardens uh, suddenly appeared on the site and for no reason dropped a stick of dynamite down the beaver dam, killing the female and her offspring. And he was so shocked by this act that seemed to make no sense at all because it wasn't these beavers weren't affecting any other land around them. Uh, because there was no farms or anything around that area. And he was just shocked, and he stayed there for the rest of the day, and that evening began to record what remained of that habitat and happened to capture what he thinks was the male beaver swimming in slow circles, crying out inconsolably for its lost mate and offspring. And this is that sound. so heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, it's... And, and people accuse me of being anthropomorphic. Well, all I can say to them is my morph is definitely anthropophic. You collaborated with Richard Blackford to compose the Great Animal Orchestra Symphony. And this, this beaver is one of many creatures that you've recorded over the years in habitats that are integrated into the symphony. The beaver appears in, in the third segment entitled Elegy, which we'll play in a minute. But can you tell us first as background uh, about this orchestra and this collaboration and more broadly about your efforts to marry science and the performing arts and the importance of this to spread soundscape ecology beyond nature and science magazine readers? Yeah, well, uh, there are actually two questions here. The uh, Richard had got hold of a copy of my book that was called The Great Animal Orchestra, Finding the Origins of Music in the World's Wild Places. It was published by Little Brown in 2012. It's a fantastic book. Thank you. Yeah, I like the book too. Richard had read the book and then he emailed me and asked if I'd be interested in collaborating on a project with him. And I, I said, yeah, what do you have in mind? And he said, well, something like a symphony. And Richard had been the composer in residence at Balliol College, which is the uh, college at Oxford University, one of the many colleges at Oxford. 
And so he came to California and he spent two weeks going over different aspects of the archive. And we decided on several audio clips that might be incorporated into the symphony. He began to experiment with it and scoring on synthesizer and sent them to me. And I was so blown away by what he had done that we decided to, you know, continue the collaboration and finish it. It was um, premiered at the Cheltenham Music Festival, which is the British equivalent of Tanglewood, in 2014. And it's gone from there. I mean, it's been performed all over the world. This is an excerpt from the third movement of the Great Animal Orchestra Symphony, performed by the 70-piece BBC National Orchestra of Wales. The following year, we also did a ballet for the Alonzo King Lines Ballet, which is a San Francisco-based international core. That was just scored to natural soundscapes. There is no instrumentation in it whatsoever. But in answer to your other question about the arts, when I publish a scientific paper and get it out there in some form, Maybe six scientists will read it, or six colleagues, you know, maybe a dozen will get to it. I found that I was expending a lot of energy doing that, which is really important to do. I'm not dismissing the importance of it. I'm feeling the pressure of time so much now that I wanted to get this out to many more people and uh, in some form. And so I collaborated with uh, the Fondation Cartier in Paris, and the Cartier folks helped me put together this piece, which is called, again, the Great Animal Orchestra. It has streaming spectrograms of all of the seven habitats that I use for this integrated piece, and it runs about 90 minutes. It premiered in 2016, and it's been seen by over a million people. And so with the same amount of energy that I put into a paper, 
a million people have seen this thing and been affected by it. And I'm talking, one of the neat things about natural sound is it's not culturally biased. The language is universal. A cricket chirping, a bird chirping is universal. And people respond to it, whether they're young or old or Chinese or a Korean or Japanese or American or Italian, it doesn't really matter. All of these places have experienced these, this piece now. Luckily, one of the things that's happening is that it's being shown in America. Its American premiere is going to be late this fall at the Peabody Essex Museum. So it opens there. And then the following spring in 2022, it's going to be at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Yeah, so excited for that. Such an incredible gift for, for people to be able to experience this. So highly encourage people to, to check that out when it opens. You mentioned that you came to this realization that you were in a race against time, just given the rate of loss of these soundscapes. It, it sort of brought to mind the work of photographer Joel Sartor, who's renowned for his photo arc, uh, which is an attempt to photograph every animal before it disappears. And in many ways, your work has served a similar function for sound, but of course focuses on habitats instead of individual creatures. And so many of the sounds you've captured have unfortunately now been lost, possibly forever. When you were first recording, did you initially feel like you were in that race against time and, and keeping something for posterity that was about to be gone? Or did that mission come later? And if so, when did that happen? I never really felt the pressure of time until I started to uh, do the metadata on, the, on this archive. And then I realized how much is not here anymore. Uh, if I go back to some of these places, you're just, there's nothing there except a parking lot or a building or, you know, a road or something. I realized that a few places I've been to have, if, if they've changed that radically, then God knows what's happening to all the places that I haven't been to. And so I just extrapolated that and was horrified by the specter of the stuff not being there anymore. And there, there was just a publication a few months ago between 1970 and now, three billion birds have disappeared in North America. I don't know if you read that, but that's, mm -hmm. that's yeah. a pretty extraordinary uh, piece. We were very excited, Bernie, to hear that you have a number of projects in addition to the Foundation Cartier exhibit, which we're really looking forward to coming closer to us in New Haven so we can come see it in person going on now. Uh, one is that you're working on finding a home for this incredible library that you've built over the last 50 years. And then you also have a new book coming out. And I'm wondering if you'll tell us about, about both of those projects. Uh, I'm 82 years old now, and I'm really looking for a home for this and also for some group, and particularly an academic group, that would be willing to carry on the work. And we're talking about a real serious interdisciplinary project here one that involves not only bioacoustics and the science of bioacoustics, but also, also one that, that is interested in the cultural aspects of this work and the ways that it can transform our understanding of the natural world through culture. So that's the purpose of my approach to this archive. It's complete. It's got all the metadata all ready to go, and the archive is well-conformed. I must say, however, that we lost everything during the 2017 Northern California fires. 
and all my original analog recordings that I'd recorded from the late 1960s to the 80s are gone. However, all of that was backed up digitally and sent to the Fondation Cartier in March of 2017, six months before the fires, because of the anti-science policies of, of the past administration. And so I wanted to make sure that the science was still there and got this stuff offshore to the Fondation Cartier so that um, it would be still protected. And luckily I did that. I had the whole archive and the whole thing protected now. But it still needs an academic home. Cartier won't do anything with it, but the, the academic home and the development of the programs still needs to be done. So that takes care of that. As far as the book is concerned, my new book is called The Power of Tranquility in a Very Noisy World. It talks about the ways in which we identify and reduce the damaging oral assaults that besiege us all the time. You know, incoherent dissonance that impacts our health more than we might realize. So I've put together a book about the sounds that we have to watch out for and the sounds that are going to help heal us as they have for me. It comes out in September of this year, and uh, it's going to be on Little Brown Achette. We're very much looking forward to that book coming out. It's incredibly timely, and your entire bibliography is just a masterpiece, and, and every every bit of it is a, a joy and illuminating to read. Thank you. I'm, and we're so sorry to hear about how close to home you felt the wildfire impacts and, and the devastating that impact that had on you both personally and, and also your professional collection. Uh, it was sort of a, a double whammy for natural habitats, losing their sound as a result of climate change in, in the world, and then also losing these sounds again with the disappearance of their analog form. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the role that climate change is having within these soundscapes and specifically about the impact it's had near your own home uh, on the Sugarloaf Mountain. I'm noticing the impacts of climate change all around wherever we live. Spring is occurring two weeks earlier than it did when I first started recording here 35 years ago. And it's a, a radical change that happened very quickly. But also when it changes the way that spring occurs, it also changes the ways in which birds choose to migrate because they've got to have food and they have to have places where they can light on their routes traveling north or south. So uh, one of the places that I have been recording every year is a place called Sugarloaf Ridge State Park, which is very nearby. It's about a 20-minute drive from where we are. And it's also one of those places which is in a local area, it's a rural area, where you can record for many hours without hearing planes flying over or cars going by on a road. So it's, it's really quite quiet and quite pristine. So um, at this one place that I've been recording, I was able to capture from 1993 when we first moved here to the present, I was able to capture a progression of a sound, particularly the effects of a drought, which we've been experiencing since 2011. It's the worst drought in 1,200 years, I guess, and we're still in the midst of it right now, even this year, with a few storms coming through that haven't dumped much rain here. I captured uh, everything to 2004, which was very healthy, and, uh, and it had wonderful density and diversity of, of bird life. Uh, so 2004, 
is the first example that I'm going to show, and it's only 15 seconds. And then the next 15 seconds is comprised of 2009, five years later, and it shows the beginning of a different bird migration. Different species of birds are represented, although some of the same are still there. And it also shows the density beginning to drop off a little bit. The density is the total number of birds represented in that habitat at that particular time. The diversity is the total number of species represented. And then also there's 2014, which is the third year of the drought. And 2015, which was a silent spring. There was no stream and there were no birds. really very striking. It's really a good illustration of, you know, how the soundscape defines uh, what's going on. Mm -hmm. I would be remiss after having prepared for this podcast and as I told you by email, listening to your Gorillas in the Mix album for several weeks now straight. It's extraordinarily catchy. And I was blown away in listening to this to find out that all of these sounds that, that, that you produce, this is an album um, featuring your own music made from, made from your recordings, come from animals and nature. Will you tell us about this album? Okay. My favorite is Trout from Ipanema. There's also Stomp in the Name of Love and Ape No Mountain High Enough. <laughs> silly, silly stuff like that. And they're all really good, too. <laughs> really catchy. Thank you. The album was conceived because I was doing a lot of community outreach and doing talks in various schools, high schools and, and elementary schools. And the problem was that the kids won't listen to a talking head. They haven't got the patience and the ability to do it. So I thought to myself, well, hell, I'm going to put together some music here and play it with a good sound system and get their attention and say, these are all animal sounds. And then I can show them how it's all animals. I had 300 animal sounds that I had isolated. And I was trying to fit them into categories where percussion and so on and so forth. This is very early on. This was done in 1988, 1989. I took these 300 sounds and I created a percussion group with them, mostly fish. Lead vocals are whales and birds and elephants. And the backbeat and a lot of the orchestra is made up of chimpanzees and insects and other creatures. And so I put together the album. It was called Gorillas in the Mix, which is a pun on gorillas in the mist. We tried to use uh, puns with titles. And it's a fun album. We put together a group called Human Remains. And that's your introduction. <laughs>
so catchy. We, we often ask Bernie at the end as the final question to our guests, if they have particular works that have had a great influence on them, be it books or films or music. And I'd be curious what your answer to that is. And feel free to interpret works very broadly. Well, it's funny you should ask that. I was just thinking about that the other day. During my formative years working in the field, I had no mentors. I really didn't know very much about what it was I was doing or even what I was capturing on tape. So I really had to rely on some of the literature that was available. Luckily, there was Murray Schaefer's book, uh, The Tuning of the World, which I mentioned earlier. But there was also Aldo Leopold, Sand County Almanac, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, Lauren Isley, the anthropologist and philosopher from the UPenn, who wrote, uh, among other things, The Invisible Pyramid and The Star Thrower. There's Camille Dungy, the African-American poet and author who more recently has edited a book called Black Nature, a compendium that includes wonderful poets like Al Young. And there's Barbara Kingsolver, uh, who wrote How to Fly in Poisonwood Bible. Her wonderful descriptions of the natural world that surround her subjects are really beautiful to read. There's Barry Lopez, who just passed away, who wrote many, many essays and books on the natural world. Ed Abbey, Desert Solitaire, The Monkey Wrench Gang, who, you know, was a real troublemaker. And Abbey uh, was a wonderful storyteller as well and, and terrific to read. Wallace Stegner, Angle of Repose. It's one of the most beautifully written novels of the 20th century. The writing is so exquisite that I used to, I used to copy the pages and pin them to the wall and study his sentence construction and use of words to see if I could learn from his craft and art. There's Jack Turner, who wrote The Abstract Wild, a commentary on white America and our conflicted relationship to the natural world. This book was written in the mid-90s. And a more recent book of fiction, Overstory by Richard Powers, is a must-read for its integration of natural history insight and emotional impact. And of course, there's the late Paul Shepard's writings, where his book Nature and Madness posits that the further we draw away from the natural world as a culture, the more pathological we become. And if you don't believe that, just watch the news. And there's his book that was published shortly after his death, The Others, How Animals Made Us Human. It's his publication that first posited the connection between natural soundscapes and human music and has influenced my work beyond measure. Let's see if there's anything else. There are the contemporary writings that appear in the publications like The Guardian and The New Yorker with Bill McKibben and Elizabeth Colbert, for instance. I must say that on the music side of things, I haven't been listening as much as I used to, uh, but I can point out a few things that I've been listening to lately. Cosmo Sheldrake, the young Brit who samples sounds and makes wonderful music and, uh, and videos. There's David Byrne, his album with St. Vincent, Love This Giant, is terrific for its arrangements. John Luther Adams, Become Ocean. He's the composer from Alaska who does wonderful symphonies, mostly with the uh, Seattle Symphony. And Sophie, the young artist who just died a little while ago, who did an album, It's Okay to Cry. Her stuff is really extraordinary. Um, it's a wonderful compendium of musical ideas, mostly electronic. Those are the people I listen to and I read and who've informed my work.
Bernie Kraus, thank you for joining us. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Bernie Krauss and his work. Thanks for listening.